0: So as we continue on, um, we've been walking together with these characters uh, that Jesus has met on the way to the cross. And uh, last week we were challenged, (laughs) and I had some comments, we were challenged by an interesting view of a widow that was giving everything that she uh, to live on to a false religion while Jesus was watching her. And I know that the the focus has been a lot of times on the fact of her giving all. Um, But she gave to a false religion. If you remember, in history, there had been no rise of false religions like there was in Jesus' day. And I challenge you to think about that that was the reality of the fact of why the fullness of time had come. Because it was at that moment, not only the false religion of Baal and of Asherah and of, um, of, of Moloch and others uh, that had come up uh, throughout the years, uh, and, and then the Roman uh, false religion uh, of Zeus and of made-up characters. I, I didn't say this last week, but you know what? You know where I think that that came from? In Noah's day, when... Um, when the when the Noah's day, yeah, when the angels came down and culminated with women, and there were sons of Adam, sons of Seth that were born of unusual strength and power, and I think that's what rose the um, the uh, occultic Roman religion as they looked at these gods that came on earth. Um, and so no other time in history, and Jesus is sitting there, and he's watching this woman give everything to a false god, thinking that somehow she was going to, that would, that would bring her um, true faith and, and eternal life. And I had somebody come and say, we don't like that, do we? Doesn't your heart kind of go, what did she do? I think that's one reason why people didn't dare to preach on it that way because it rises up that just right. But these are some of the people that Jesus walked across as he was going to the cross. He is one of the utmost of significance in all the world. And he comes and meets the insignificant along the way to the cross that's big. That's huge. And I know that some, even within our midst here, have felt insignificant in their life. And yet, Jesus chose to meet you. Jesus chose to open his heart up to you. That's pretty huge, because you've looked in the mirror, and you've saw yourself as insignificant. And you have every reason in the world to because the accuser is sitting next to you going, you know what you did? You know what you did? You know what you did? I know what you did. I'm telling the Lord what you did. But that's not where he wants you to stay. But I think it's amazing that within our hearts we have this sense of justice. In fact, I believe that that actually is a picture of the fact that God is real. Because where did you get your morality from? Where did you get that first cause of morality? It was from a God who is over the sphere of all things and says, this is right and this is wrong. That's where you got it from. And we live in a world where they're trying to change that. And so, but isn't it interesting that one of the things of sin in our own lives is the fact that we demand justice in other people and yet we relax sometimes in our own self. We sometimes put more on others and make excuses for the way that we act. And so, as we come into this, I know I haven't given you a passage yet, and I haven't given you a character yet. No, I haven't. That's for a reason. Proverbs seventeen fifteen says this, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests both. You believe that? I do too. I do too. And yet the cross, and yet the cross, which almost seems to be a contradiction of that because at the cross, the innocent is said to be guilty and the guilty is said to be innocent. We can hear that in here, but can we hear that here? Can we truly receive that? Our character today Jesus met along his journey is one that should unnerve us and set our heart on fire. It's a man, this man is a picture of undeserving grace, someone we should be prone to hate, and yet we all embody him in our natural self. So, I thought about this and I thought I'm going to keep him on the edge. So, would you indulge me just a, a fictitious story about his life? So I want you to imagine he walks up in front of you and he says, thank you for letting me come and give testimony in my life. I was raised a Jewish boy in Jewish tradition in the first century. I was born around the same time as the one they called Jesus of Nazareth. My name means son of Abba, which is interesting because I have heard people call Jesus the son of God. Our lives paralleled each other, not only geographically, but we were brought up with the same beliefs. I was trained under the rabbis as a young boy, believing that if I lived my life by the law exactly every day, I would earn my way to salvation and to heaven. I learned the 613 rules that would govern my life And that whatever I put into my body, whether in food or wrong learning, would make me dirty. I was taught that the Messiah wouldn't come unless all Jews became perfect in their doctrine and in their life. I was taught to pray for the Messiah's coming because he would come in military force from heaven, coming down into the temple. He would overcome the dirty Romans and set up Israel as his people again, and they would rule With him over the earth. It's funny that even though my people said they believed these things, for me they didn't answer the important life questions Who am I? What is my purpose here? Where am I going? The hollow philosophies of our religion kept my heart empty. I, at an early age, knew that I couldn't keep all the laws. My efforts became futile and my life was empty. I tried to fill my life with other things of the world, and I became very good at stealing. As I grew older, I met two young men that were good at stealing too. We formed a group and became very close. In our desire to hurry up the Messiah's conquest, we became insurrectionists, arising up against the established authority. I ended up killing a Roman official And that is how I met Jesus. (laughs) La haskash dim benas na la divrat. Ганна, жоу? Единком дикулшена, а чеси пилитком, а ведра шаха. Кьян, анахна, нахаксин бейт, эсури. Радцеха едиа, uh <laughs> 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 Turn with me to Luke 23. We're going to start with the 13th verse. I asked Ryan to put the clip up. So every once in a while, I want you to look at him. Barabbas. He's our He is our uh, character that Jesus met along the way. Luke 23, 13 through 25. Read with me. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and for murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Holy injustice, the innocent for the guilty. The context of this story is that Pilate is the governor over the Judea territory, Appointed by the emperor of Rome, it was demanded of all governors that peace would reign in the land because Rome wanted to have what was called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Power and position were the true gods of that time for the Roman citizens and so the loss would be considered the end of their natural existence. Pilate was under the gun to maintain peace in Judea because he had been fighting zealots and insurrectionists. The emperor was watching all the moves in Judea, and everyone knew it, even the chief priests, for they said to him in John 19, 12, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar As the intensity grows, even Pilate's own wife weighs in and says to him in Mark 15, 10, excuse me, in in Matthew 27, 19, don't have anything to do with that innocent man for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now, Pilate knew the chief priest's reason for doing it. They knew that Jesus had become popular and that he was undermining them. And so it says in Mark 15, 10, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over is the reason why Pilate came up the idea of Barabbas. He knew it was for jealousy and envy. He knew it was that Jesus had exposed their hypocrisy that he knew about and challenged their authority and threatened their religion and power. As we think about this personally, as a believer, the question is this. What happens to you when your power and authority is threatened? What do you do? You see, that's exactly where Jesus Christ comes into our lives. It is in the place where we have positioned ourselves in power, in protection, that Jesus comes in and says, can I be your Lord and your Savior right here? Will you surrender it all to me? The Pharisees and the, and, and, and the Sadducees and the rulers of the law and the chief priests would not do it. They would not do it. That's why Jesus went to the cross because they said, my power is more important than your authority. Pride keeps Jesus away from us. Whether it is pride of I am good or if it's pride that I am no good. It is pride that keeps us Jesus away from us and he is calling us. He is calling us. The most dangerous place in the world is to be set in the midst of the truth of the word of God and to reject the lordship of God over you. In fact, the the writer of Hebrews warns us and says it is impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The chief priests, the Pharisees, had the word of God. They had everything to, to point them, the fact that the Messiah was standing in front of their face, and yet they walked away. And as we think of this character, we think about, we think about the fact that Jesus was about to take his place. Pilate unfolding and understanding the idea that was behind these rulers decided to enact something that's called the Passover Amnesty Program. Every year, to bring peace among the people, uh, they would, in good will, bring one arrested person out and set them free. And so what Pilate's plan was to bring out the worst of the worst, figuring that if he would do that, that they would certainly choose Jesus, because why would he? Why would he have thought that? What did they do five days earlier? Palms, celebrating the King is coming in to the city. Very popular. You know, Jesus can be popular in our minds, but not in our hearts. We can like the idea of Jesus. We can like the idea of a Savior, but to receive Him as Lord of our life, to go beyond popularity to the place where our heart receives the authority of Jesus Christ in us, it's a whole different program. But He was appealing to this because of Jesus' popularity, and so He brought out the worst of the worst. But the plan backfired. And in verse 18, it says the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. It's amazing to me how we can sacrifice, we can sacrifice the gift of eternity. For what we determine is so important in our life that we have to hold on to it. You, haven't, you have a choice. Pilate, Pharisees, all had a choice. Jesus in front of them, just like the widow, Jesus in front of them, and yet choosing the falsity of things on this earth, the falsity of the, what this world has a grip on with him. Notice that as this went on, he, he said, you know, three times, three times, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about this in a moment. Three times he said, you know, I find nothing wrong with this man. But what happened in verse 23 the, the, the shouts got louder and louder. There's a shouting that's going on today. Do you hear it? There's a shouting that's going on here today. There's a shouting of false truths, false religion, falsity, like no other time in history. Like no other time in history is today. And they're getting louder. As I thought about this, I I thought it's interesting. Notice who's staying quiet. Jesus. You know why that is? It was prophesied. Isaiah 42 says this, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street. He was a sheep before the shearer and went silently. Why? Because he knew what he had to do. But people of God, it's time to shout again. Now, I I want... This is an interesting point because there has been a strange thing that's happened in the Christian realm. Nobody's calling us, no spirit's calling us to shout politically. Do you know that in 1930, Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany and he saw what was happening in the Nazi regime. And so he preached at one of the main churches in Germany. One of the main churches where all the aristocrats went and he spoke right at them about what was happening in front of their face with Hitler and with the Nazi movement and he said, this is not of God and we have to rise up against it. But the church was sleeping so much underneath the prosperity and underneath what was happening in Germany that had become so sleep religiously And so sleep in their faith that they couldn't see what was going on, and they did not listen. And so, in in about 1931, Bonhoeffer said, "I got to get out of here. I got to go do something because this is ridiculous." You know where he came? Came to America. And what he did here was he experienced the expression of faith in America in 1931. Guess where he fit in? The African American church. He loved their expression of faith. He loved he loved it. And he felt like his heart was at home there. And it inspired him in saying, this is what it should look like. It shouldn't be just something we sit quietly by and don't do anything. We should, we should dance. We should, we should lift up the name of Jesus. We should be shouting. We should. That's what was happening from him. He loved it. So he went back to Germany because things had gotten worse. And I've got to do something. Went back. Guess what he did? He joined a group of insurrectionists with the plot to kill Hitler. Is that right? He was arrested before the plot could be enacted by the grace of God. Now, I say the grace of God because God's never called us to rebel the way we've seen rebellion in America. He's never called us to rebel that way. It is not biblical. We need to rebel like Willerforce did against slavery. What did he do? He said, we got to get the truth out there. We got to get the truth out there. And that's what Witherforce did. And after, what, how many years? 20 years? Finally, slavery was abolished. The Holy Spirit is calling us to stand up and to speak again in this nation. In fact, he promises us this, that if you'll choose to stand up in front and to proclaim my truth, he said, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you the words to say. Only go and proclaim the truth. People say, well, you know, words don't do much. Listen to me. We serve a God that spoke and the world was formed. You don't think words have something, some power? They do, people of God. The word that's in front of us claims that it can change somebody's heart. I cannot change Jake's heart. But this word did. Amen? Amen. Amen. This word is powerful and effective. Cutting through the bone and the marrow to the very soul and spirit of a human being. This, This word changes Countries. And we have history of that. People of God, it can again. It can again. But what happened to Pilate is happening to some of us. Notice that Pilate says three times, I find this man innocent. I find this man innocent. And yet, he was facing this crowd that was shouting, threatening his position. And so, what was happening here? This is a spiritual warfare. What does the devil love to do? Listen to me, don't sleep on me. The devil loves to put you in a double bind. He loves to put you in a place where you feel like you're between a rock and a hard spot, that any decision you make is going to, is going to turn out wrong. And he puts you there as a tactic. It's an addict who continues to fall to sin and yet deserving uh, to be viewed as good will not expose their sin in fear of the consequence that would come. This is a spiritual battle. And that is happening. Pilate knows the truth. And yet he's afraid to enact the truth because he knows he will lose his position. And in fact, in my studies, It was years later that another rebellion came up, and he did lose his he did lose his position. The Caesar took him out of position and banished him. And it is um, uh, people believe that um, that Pilate committed suicide uh, because he had nothing more to work for, so or to live for. So he is in a double bind. But I want you to think about it: to condemn Jesus, the innocent, was to breach his justice. To declare Jesus the innocent guilty was to breach his duty, and so in this double bind, he understood the Jewish law. So what he did is he took you back, took you back to um, Deuteronomy. Uh, it is the uh, twenty, I think twenty-first verse. If I'm not, twenty-first chapter, one through nine talks about the fact that if, if a man is killed outside a city. The uh, priests and the rulers will go to that man and if nobody knows who did it, they will measure from that man to the closest city. Once they know which is the closest city, they will go to that city and the rulers will come out of that city and they'll take a heifer. They'll bring that heifer to a valley where there's a stream and they will break that heifer's neck. Now, this is an important heifer. It has never had a yoke on it. It has never been used for work. It has, to be, it has to be a completely unused heifer at this point. They'll break his neck, and then what they'll do is they'll wash their hands over top of the heifer. And um, I'm going to read the words to you because I think that's, uh, you should hear it, uh, what they had to say in regards to this. Deuteronomy 21, if you want to look it up later, it says this. This is what they're to say as they're washing their hands. "'Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent person. Then the bloodshed will be atoned for, and you will have purged from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood, since you have done what is right in the eyes of the Lord.'" Pilate knew this and understood this, and so he did a washing of the innocent. So here's the picture. Here is Pilate, here is the chief priest, and here is this Barabbas standing there. I said to you at the beginning of this message, is somebody that you should hate, and yet you understand in your own self, in your own natural self and body. It is very true. I'm glad that he stuck his tongue out at the guy and went, ah! Haven't we sometimes done that with our life to God? Haven't we been Barabbas ourselves at times? That's what makes this injustice, what makes justice so uh, a picture of holy injustice. In the book of Colossians, it defines um, uh, as the innocent taking the place of the condemned. It says that in Colossians 2.14, it says that in the midst of our sinful nature, all of us have signed a certificate of debt. Meaning that with every sin, with every act, we signed this certificate that says we're worthy of dying. We're worthy of being condemned. It says that the certificate of debt is hostile against us and it is a curse in the holy court of God it is exactly what the evil one sits and tells us this is what you've done Barabbas embodies this in all his depravity he is the perfect candidate for grace he is so blind to what's in front of him and yet the one is going to take his place on the cross it was his wood that Jesus died on, and this was done physically, but our gathering from Scripture is it never happened spiritually. So Barabbas answers some good, important questions for us today. First is who did Jesus die for? When God said that He so loved the world that He sent His Son, He meant all of human creation. There's been an interesting lie that has gone around, and that is that, that Jesus died only for the elect. They do not agree with that. There is not a single soul he did not create. There's not a single soul that he did not t- knit together in his mother womb, and he loves until the end of their life every single human being that has ever lived. And he died for all. Now, does that death make a difference to all? No. because in rejection, we reject the death. I think the second question that it answers is, what is the qualification for entrance into grace? There is only one: total depravity. Any time that you think there is some good within you that is worthy of anything is what separates you from grace. Romans uh, 7, 18, Paul says this, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature or my flesh. Listen to me, people of God. It is extreme maturity to see that without the blood of Jesus to cleanse our hearts and without the filling of the Holy Spirit to empower our lives to live for God, we are totally devoid of anything good. Totally devoid of anything good. what we know about Barabbas that makes him a prime candidate. Matthew 5, 48 says, Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The original word for perfection is complete. The offer of salvation in Jesus Christ is that our union with Christ causes us to be a new creation and the newness of recreated human is completeness. Is completeness. So, What we didn't what do we know about Barabbas that's incomplete? What does that look like? First of all, he was spiritually incomplete. He was totally out of fellowship with God. In the murder of another and stealing from others is a sign that one has chosen a life of hatred and using human beings for what they can get. The question is this are you spiritually complete? Will you see that in your relationship? You will see that in your relationship with others. He was spiritually incomplete. He was out of fellowship with God. Second, he was morally incomplete. Barabbas is living totally outside of God's will. Like I said, God is the first cause of morality. He is the reason you know right from wrong. But living outside of his will is incompleteness in true, holy morality. Let me ask you this question. Are you incomplete by making room and justifying your sin in your life? Some men and I are studying uh, the uh, pursuit of holiness. And, he, and the author said this, if in any way, shape, or form you are making room for sin in your life, then I can, he says you sin is all over your life. You can give Sin, no comfortable place in your heart. And that's, that's not easy. In fact, it's impossible without Jesus. So he's spiritually incomplete, he's morally incomplete, and thirdly, he's mentally incomplete. Barabbas rejected ultimate and absolute truth. He was living out the lie that what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. Now listen. Listen. That is happening in the church. Listen to me. There is a, there is a um, I think it's Pew Research that says that 61% of people who call themselves Christians do not believe in absolute truth. 61% do not believe in it. And your leadership and I are experiencing even in our own denomination It has infiltrated the door and it's opening the door for bringing sin into the church. Now, either Jesus is at, listen, either Jesus is absolute truth or he is the greatest liar and fraud that ever put on human skin. He he gives you no alternative than those two things. Either he's absolute God true incarnate God of all, or he is, a, he is a liar and a fraud. And so Barabbas was spiritually incomplete, he was morally incomplete and mentally incomplete. Listen to me. I know that there may even be some of us in this room today that identify. And I just want to say to you, my friend. There's hope. Colossians 2, 9-10 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Listen, what it means. Fullness in deity means that in Jesus Christ, the Godhead is manifest. Jesus is is the manifestation of the divine power of God. He is the very picture of who God is. When Jesus does it, that's what God does. He says, he says I do nothing but what the Father tells me. I have not come here. My food is, is, is to do my Father's will. Jesus Christ was on task, on target in his life. And did everything the Father. You want, to know, you want to know who God is? The Father? Look at what Jesus does. That is what God does. Study Jesus and you'll see the face of God even though he is v- invisible. But the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And the, the word uh, lives means it's the same word as dwells. It's settled down and has a home In Christ that the deity of the father the deity of the Godhead abides in home at Jesus Christ this is a promise but did you notice the rest of it Jesus is a fullness of deity he lives in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to fulfillness have been brought to perfection have been brought to completeness in Jesus Christ that is, our, that is our hope and that is the truth. So, as I end this time, the questions are obvious. As you see Barabbas, as you, see his, as, as you just picture his face, when's the times you did that? When's the time that you stuck your tongue out to Jesus? When's the time that you saw sin as something that was more attractive to you than the one who has given his life for you. I loved it that in the picture that Mel Gibson had Barabbas look at Jesus and look back at him again. I wonder what went through his mind. Really. He's free. He's free and yet blinded because he couldn't see the one that was in front of him. So the questions I pray that burn your heart is this, are you spiritually complete? Are you growing in your love for God and growing your love for each other? That is a sign of completeness because being spiritually complete is about relationship. It's about relationship. Where are Where are your relationships going? Remember what the word says. You say that you love God, and yet you hate your brother? You're a liar. How can you love the one you cannot see when you're not able to love the one you can? And he taught us. He said, love your enemies. So you know what? If you don't like me, praise God. I get to fulfill God's word by loving you. But get, but no, when you don't do that, it's because the hatred of another person threatens your power and position. Do you have any power and position in this world? Or is Jesus Christ your absolute power and position? Is it his authority that's over you, or is it your authority? Give it up. Your authority is only going to take you to the end of this life. His authority is the power that... That arose him from the dead and the power that will rise your life from the dead. That is the authority of Jesus Christ, the Godhead, who loves you. Second, are you morally complete? Are you living a life that says, not my will, but thy will be done? Are you? We can say that, but then we make our own decisions. We make our own mind up. Within the church is the context of this. You know what? If, I'm going to use my cousin as an example. You know, John's been preaching for a while. He's, he's a pretty good preacher, but, you know, he's gotten a little boring to me. And so I'm, I'm going to go to another church. Who made that will up? You or God? We can live as believers by saying Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we can live by atheists by doing our own will. Question is, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then finally, so are you you spiritually complete? Are you morally complete? And are you mentally complete? The Bible says, living in the light as he is in the light. God's truth is the light of your heart. It is the it is right. Paul prayed it this way: he prayed, I, I pray that your heart will be enlightened. Right, grow in the truth of Jesus Christ. Realize the amazing inheritance that you have. Realize, Lauren, you're going into surgery. What's going to happen? Nobody knows. But today, your heart can be the same heart he's going to worship, or he's going to they're going to work on can be enlightened in your spirit." He's got you and and your riches are with him in heaven no matter what happens. What, What peace that surpasses all understanding, what beauty do you live in that light? Is his truth that which leads you? Does it bother you that the widow gave everything she had to a false to a false religion? Yes, it does, and it should. Does it bother you that Barabbas set free by one who was innocent and did not recognize him as God? It should, but it's happening every day in church. People walk in and out of church. Jesus is right here. He loves you. Are you going to walk out of that back door not seeing him? Are you going to walk out of that back door because you see him? I don't care about me. Ryan doesn't care about him. We're just just instruments. Under-shepherd, under-worshipper. Overachiever-worshipper, but (laughs) under-worshipper. I've never worshipped with a guy like this before. I love him with all my heart. But people of God, Jesus is here amongst us. And he's calling us to be a church that is spiritually complete. Growing in our love of God, growing in our love of each other, realizing we've been called in this family to love each other. Not to just walk in and out, but to learn to love each other. We're family. This is more family than your blood family. Because this is a family that's going to go on forever. Some of your blood family don't know Jesus. You may not spend eternity with them. No, let's get honest with ourselves. Secondly, are you really living out God's will for your life? Are you? No, are you? Or are you fighting against it? I told you a couple weeks ago that I fought God on standing up in my classes. Twice I was called to do it. Twice I said no to him. The last time, with the help of a brother who I love, We stood up. We stood up. People of God, I know there are, in here, this room, God is calling you to something. You've been pushing back at him for years because of your own security, because of your own protection, because of whatever it is, your own authority, your your own position. And today, he's saying, don't be like Barabbas. Who walked away from Jesus? Fall before Him. Surrender to Him. Let Him make you spiritually, morally, and mentally complete so that the life you live is completely for Him. Completely sold out to Jesus. That kind of church changed the world, it changed the world. So don't forget Barabbas. Don't forget that he walked away. Don't be him today. Stand with me as we pray. Pray with me. Father, we walking this journey of what seems to be insignificant people, and yet, Father, you saw them so significant that uh, you, you wrote about it in your word. As your son passed by, he, he intervened into these people's lives on the way to the cross. They say that a dying man's last words are the most important words to hold on to. And so as Jesus is walking this path, the word that he said to Barabbas is, I take your place. Father, in this room he's saying the same thing to each one of us. Take your place. And to pray that, Father, that unlike Barabbas, that, that Father, we will not be drawn into the world 's grasp of incompleteness, but we' will be grasped into the fact that Jesus manifests the Godhead in his very being that 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 the that uh, the deity of God found his home in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and that in that we find our f- fullness, our fulfillment, what life really is about who we really are, and where we're going. Yes, it is holy injustice. Yes, the innocent should never take the place of the guilty. And yet, Father, in your great plan and purpose, by your design, you saved the world in a strange way. God, I pray that in our hearts that becomes such an important thing that, Lord, we don't look to the right or the left. We continue to hear the voice of the Spirit saying, walk this way and that each one of us walks. For, Father, I have to admit there's times in my life where I have claimed faith and lived like an atheist. That I have said your words, your book, but have not lived them out. And so, Father, forgive me, for I need you more than anyone else in this room. I pray that, Father, you will work in such a way and raise this family up so that our love grows deeper, your will becomes the most important thing for all of us, and that, Lord, we live in the absolute reality of truth, and that truth drives our lives every day. May we grow in that, Lord. May we grow in you. May we not let, make room for sin, but may we, Lord, let you lead us in the uncomfortableness of the Christian walk in a world that hates you so that, Father, the, the light of Jesus Christ can shine out from this place. We give you praise and honor and glory for this. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus.